On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 big questions which he believed faced the church of his day to a local church door in Wittenberg, Germany. 500 years later, I decided to post 95 new questions, one a week, to the web, questions which I believe the church must face in the 21st century. So to pick up where we left off in Chalk Talk 89, in my view, far from teaching the eternal punishment of all those who are not Christians, the Apostle Paul sees the final day of judgment to which all history is headed as the day when all of the world's unheard, the forgotten, the dispossessed, the overlooked, the misunderstood, will be finally recognised and restored when they will all at last receive long-awaited, long-hoped-for justice. But before I go any further, I realise that some of you will want to remind me that whatever I make of Paul and his teaching, in the end he was a follower of Jesus and not the other way round, which means that we have to take seriously what Jesus said, and Jesus, is claimed, said a lot about hell and a lot about the gnashing of teeth and everlasting punishment. So, over the next two weeks, we're going to take a much deeper look at exactly what the understanding of judgment was that Paul inherited from Jesus. Now, the word that's most often translated as hell or hellfire in English New Testaments is actually Gehenna. It occurs on 12 occasions and it's Jesus who uses it on all but one of these. The other is in the book of James. Here's just one example from Jesus recorded in Matthew's Gospel chapter 18. Jesus said, we're taught, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. But the actual word Jesus chooses to use isn't hell, instead it's Gehenna. He's speaking metaphorically throughout, actually, once you stop and think about it. But the point is this, the very fact that the name Gehenna has been replaced with the term hell has led to huge confusion. Countless people, therefore, have wrongly assumed that Jesus' references to Gehenna equate to his way of talking about the grotesque images of everlasting torture that we've inherited from Dante, from Michelangelo, and from medieval church dogma. But Gehenna is a place name, the name of a specific geographical location. And so to attempt to, inverted commas, translate it at all, is extremely misleading. Now, it's very well known that in Jesus' day, the Valley of Gehenna was a smouldering municipal garbage dump just outside the old city of Jerusalem. It was notorious because of the child sacrifices that had been offered there to the god Molech during the, t uh, the reigns of King Ahaz and Manasseh, who were kings of Judah. But since then, and because of that, it had become regarded as cursed ground and had eventually been turned into a rubbish heap, which is why, as the dogs and wild animals fought over scraps of rotting food there, you would often have been able to hear snarling and gnashing teeth. 
So metaphorically, that's why Gehenna represented the very worst position to end up in in life. A stinking, disease-infested pile of putrid waste ground beyond the protection of the city. However, there are two more very important pieces of information which are not as well known, but are equally essential for grasping Jesus' use of the metaphor of Gehenna. And the first is this. Gehenna, as a metaphor, in this way wasn't unique to Jesus. For instance, the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah do exactly the same thing. And it's because Jesus, as well as his Jewish audience, knew all this very well that he could use it so freely without any explanation. But second, let's take a look at two key prophecies concerning Gehenna in the Old Testament that have either been forgotten or perhaps sometimes even deliberately ignored by Western preachers, but were very well known to Jesus and all of his contemporaries. Jeremiah chapter 3 verses 38 to 40 declare that, Behold, days are coming when the city, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt for the Lord, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, a reference to Gehenna, shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. The fortunes of Gehenna, the Bible teaches, are going to be turned around. And it's not just one isolated thought, because the prophet Joel says, you can find it in chapter 3, verse 18 of the book named after him, In that day, the final day of judgment, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All of the ravines of Judah will run with water. Now, for those of you know, who know the geography, the phrase all the ravines of Judah includes, of course, the Valley of Gehenna. The Old Testament prophets are very clear. Nothing, even Gehenna, is beyond the redemptive reach of the love of God. So it turns out the Valley of Gehenna is not destined to be the everlasting pit of fire that we've made it out to be. Although in the sayings of Jesus, the stench of Gehenna is a powerful metaphor, it's a metaphor for the inevitable consequences of a broken way of being human. And it's got nothing to do with everlasting punishment. When Jesus warned his contemporaries about Gehenna, he wasn't telling them that unless they repented in this life, they'd burn forever in the next one. Instead, he was warning them that to live out of sync with the values that he was teaching, the values of the kingdom of God, was stupid. It was self-destructive. Don't settle for living on life's rubbish dump. It stinks, he was saying. Paul, a follower of Jesus, and of course a scholar of the Old Testament, would have taken all of this for granted. He understood it, he knew it, which is why he never once uses the term hell in any of his teaching or speaks of the idea of the unending infernal torment of anyone. It just wasn't part of his worldview. Instead, he taught, as we've already seen, that all things in heaven and earth and under the earth will eventually be reconciled to the God who is pure love. And as he puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, every tongue 
will willingly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What could be plainer than that? So to finish, does this make sense to you? If so, why? If not, why not? And what further questions does it raise? Now, by the way, next week in part two, we'll be exploring Jesus's famous parable, the one about the sheep and the goats, where the goats, on the basis of their lack of response to the hungry and thirsty, the lonely and sick, the prisoners and the destitute, are sent away into what various English Bible translations have told us is eternal punishment. All of that next week. See you then. I explore this issue more deeply as well as many others raised by the Apostle Paul's writing in my new book, The Lost Message of Paul. You can purchase your paperback copy today from openchurch.network slash lostmessageofpaul or from any good bookshop. An e-book and an audio book are also available from Amazon as well as from other online retailers.